0: Hey hey beer fans, welcome to Experimental Brewing with Denny and Drew. I'm Denny Kahn.
1: And I'm Drew Beechram. Together we're the authors of Experimental Homebrewing, Mad Science in the Pursuit of Great Beer. Homebrew All-Stars, where we talk to 25 of the world's best brewers and get their secrets, tips, and tricks right for your brain pan. And, of course, now, Simple Homebrewing, available at all your finest retailers.
0: Yeah, man, it's been a long two years getting it down, and I really hope that people enjoy it. And let me just remind you, as I always do, simple is not necessarily for beginners.
1: And don't forget, if you have a copy of the book, if you've read through the book and you've decided that you have opinions about the book, Uh, Leave us a review. It helps. Between the two of us, we have over 40 years of homebrewing experience.
0: I'm the guy known for weird beer and strange ideas. And I'm the guy who's known for questioning the conventional wisdom and coming up with a way to check it out.
1: And on today's episode in this pre-HomebrewCon world, we're going to head to the pub and talk about the brew news. We've got a bunch of announcements for you and some feedback. And, of course, a quick stop by the brewery where we're going to talk about a couple of things that are changing out there in the homebrew world, including some of the stuff that we're looking forward to at homebrewcon before we finally get to the lounge where we're going to sit down with, well, I think one of America's more interesting brewers.
0: Yeah, boy, you can really say that about Mike.
1: Yeah, we're going to sit down with Mike Karnowski of zebulon artisanal ales uh, over there in north carolina i got to talk with mike when we were doing the byo boot camp and well now it's time for you guys to be able to hear what we talked about
0: but before we do all of that sit back grab yourself a beer unless you're driving and take a listen to these messages from our sponsors
1: This episode is brought to you by Pico Brew, makers of the Zymatic and Pico Brewing Systems. The brewing systems of the future are here now. Discover how easy and rewarding it is to make great beer with Pico Brew. And by Craftmeister and BTF 4. When you absolutely, positively need to make every surface clean, bust out the cleaners with professional power and home brewer safety. Make better beer with better chemistry. Choose Craftmeister. This episode is brought to you by the American Homebrewers Association, who invites you to attend HomebrewCon this June 27th to June 29th in Providence, Rhode Island. HomebrewCon brings 3,000 homebrewers together for three days of brewing, seminars, nighttime events, and camaraderie. HomebrewCon is also the leading showcase of brewing supplies and equipment. Visit homebrewcon.org to learn more. And by you, our listeners. Go to ExperimentalBrew.com to help support us. Click on the Patreon link to donate whatever amount you'd like to help support us and our charities. Click on the Brew Your Own magazine link to subscribe to BYO. Or click on the AHA link to join the American Homebrewers Association and receive a subscription to Zymergy Magazine. Part of the proceeds from those go to help support the podcast. Thanks for your support.
0: Welcome back, and just like we always do before we get into the show, we have some announcements. And the very first one, we want to let you know, we have a new episode of The Brew Files out. Episode 64 that we call Tasting IPA, where uh, Drew sent me some beers, and I got to tell him what I thought of them.
1: Yeah, I almost named that episode of Bitter Aftertaste. <laughs>
0: Well, we hope that you guys enjoyed the uh, unvarnished reviews and the beers. We've been hearing from a lot of people who thought it was really great to just uh, hear me Tasting beers and uh, off the top of my head, giving comments on them.
1: And now, of course, you've got to send me beer.
0: Yeah, well, you know what? Uh, I will do that pretty soon. I'm getting three batches brewed here for Paula's birthday party, and I'll send you some of them. Uh, I won't be able to do the fancy cans like you did, but I'll send you some beer. I'll take beer even if it comes in a plastic baggie. Actually, it'll come in a plastic bottle, but uh, close enough. <laughs> All
1: right. And then, of course, homebrew con. As we said, it's almost time. This is the last episode before HomebrewCon. Well, there will be a Brew Files on the time of HomebrewCon, but the last episode of the main show. And we want to remind you that we are partnering with our friends from Country Malt Group Homebrew Division. That's uh, the former BrewCraft USA. They've now rebranded themselves. And they're going to help us throw a party on June 26th in the evening. We're going to be at the Isle Brewers Guild. Remember, last episode, we interviewed the folks at Isle Brewers Guild. It's going to go from 6 to 10 p.m. There will be multiple tap locations, multiple free sampling stations for the collaboration beers from both Country Malt Group and the Guild. We're going to have outdoor games, live music, giveaways. There's going to be a free t-shirt to the first 500 people through the gate. There will be multiple food trucks covering all sorts of stuff. You vegan, we got you covered. You like meat, we got you covered. You like food, we definitely got you covered. And, of course, there's going to be buses constantly running back and forth from 6 p.m. to 11 p.m., bringing people for free... From out front of the conference center, to the event, and back again. That's right, you can get to this party for free.
0: Yeah, you know, and with the buses, it makes it real, real easy, so we really hope we'll see you there. It's going to be a real fun Wednesday night to kick off Homebrew Con. And we want to let you know about something else that's coming up in August, and that is Hop and Brew School at Yakima Chief Hops in, where else, Yakima, Washington, It is an amazingly fun event. I've been there uh, a number of times before. You learn a lot of hops. You get to go out into the hop fields, talk to the growers, see where hops are processed and packaged. Uh, There are talks all day long also about, uh, oh, geez, all kinds of brewing-related things. Uh, They're going for a real homebrew-centric event this year, and uh, that all kicks off with an opening night party at Bale Breaker Brewing, which is an amazing brewery set in the middle of a hop field. And that is on August 30th, uh, and it goes through the weekend. So please, uh, if you're free over a Labor Day weekend, Consider coming to Yakima for Hop and Brew School. I can't think of a better time that you could have uh, in in the beer world than doing that. We'll have a link to sign up for Hop and Brew School on our website at experimentalbrew.com dot com slash hop and brew. So check it out, and we hope to see you there. Uh, oh, and also, I almost forgot. We're going to be recording the 100th episode of this podcast live at Hop and Brew School. So if you show up, uh, maybe we can get you on the show. Best time that we can guarantee that you'll
1: have in Yakima, Washington, while well, keeping your pants on.
0: <laughs> yeah, well, and uh, if you go down to the Sports Center, that might not even, uh, oh, never mind, I won't go there.
1: <laughs> and the Queen of Beer, America's 23-year-old women's homebrew competition, is returning under the auspices of our friend Melissa McCann. Thanks to sponsorship from both BSG and the Pink Boot Society, Queen of Beer will be offering the Best of Show winner a scholarship for brewing courses at UC Davis, which is pretty rad, Yeah. and they'll also have their beer brewed at Drake's Brewing Company, also pretty damn rad. So you got plenty of time to plan your entries. The entry window doesn't open until October, but until then, you can visit queenofbeer.beer for more details.
0: Wow, there's a dot .beer extension now?
1: Oh, yeah, for a couple of years now.
0: Oh, man, we may have to change our website, huh? Uh-huh. <laughs> yes, this is the guy who deals with the website. Uh, I also want to let you know about something I'm undertaking. Uh, I was thinking the other day about uh, how in the 21 years I've been brewing from my mid-40s to my uh, extremely mid-60s, uh, things have changed for me in brewing. And if you're in that age group, we want to hear from you, too. We're doing a beer over 60 survey. We're looking at the perceptions and brewing practices for homebrewers who are 60 years old and over. If you'd like to participate, drop an email to podcast at experimentalbrew.com with the subject line over 60. We'll send you the survey to fill out, and uh, we may even choose you to talk about uh, what it's like to be an older homebrewer and beer lover right here on the show. Oh, boy. I figured I figured I needed to do something that uh, you couldn't get involved in.
1: <laughs> At least not for another 20 years.
0: <laughs> That's right. Don't forget
1: you can support the podcast by leaving us a review in Apple Podcasts. You can click the AHA, BrewSwag.com, code word experimental, Amazon, Brewers, Friends, or BYO links on the website. And by going to Patreon and pledging a buck or two or more to our charitable cause for this part of the year
0: is... It's Wings of Rescue, a great 501C3 all-volunteer organization. And volunteer pilots fly animals from uh, shelters where they would likely be euthanized to no-kill shelters. Uh, It's one of those cool things that uh, will definitely have a great impact on your karma if you're into that. And uh, if you're not into it, it's just a damn good thing to do. So please go to experimentalbrew.com, click on the Patreon link, and throw us a couple bucks that we can pass along to the people at Wings of Rescue.
1: Yeah, let's save some dogs. Yeah, let's do. And now, it's time for Feedback! Feedback. That's right, it's our time for you guys to have your word with us, and we're going to start by going into the Wayback Machine, all the way back to Episode 9 of The Brew Files, Hello Mother, Hello Father. Uh, where we did both a mother's (laughs) beer and a father's beer. And we got a message from listener Frank Osborne, who said, uh, Hey, guys, insert obligatory positive comments here. Consider it done. Yeah. I just had a daughter, and I remembered way back when, on the Brew Files episode 9, you guys talked about making a booby beer. I told my wife, and she loved the idea. She is a NICU nurse and knows how yeast, barley, and oats help produce milk. So I ended up making a 1.5% ABV Saison, And it worked great. There was a clear difference in how much milk was produced on nights when she enjoyed a pint. In fact, she was sad when it kicked and kept bugging me to make it again. So I have to say, thank you for the thoughtception you placed in my head way back when. Uh, The recipe, if you're interested, was four pounds of Pilsner, one and a half pounds of oats, two ounces of chocolate malt, 0.4 ounces of Magnum at 40 minutes, two ounces of Northern Brewer at Flame Out, and the Yeast Bay Saison Blend 2, which is a great yeast uh, blend. And so thank you, Frank. And in fact, I actually sent that same message off to Tiffany, who was the mother in Hello Mother. And she actually just had her second child and formulated an apricot oak milk blonde lactation beer for this go around. So for her first child, we have the recipe on the website called Booby Beer this time. I'll see if I can get the recipe out of her for this one. But she's also reporting very similar improvements and results as well. Again, I say beer. Is there anything it can't do? It hasn't made me any smarter. I don't think there's anything that can help you though. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> and our next piece of feedback comes from Nick Tier on Athletic Brewing. You remember a couple of episodes ago on the Brew Files, we talked about non-alcoholic beer or de-alcoholized beer. And Nick wrote in to say, I wanted to thank you for your interview with Athletic Brewing on the last Brew Files. After the interview, I brought a few six-packs and their beers are fantastic. So good, I subscribed to a few of their monthly packages. It's great to have a non-alcoholic choice that still tastes like craft beer. Maybe Boston Beer Company will buy them out so you can find Athletic on Tap nationwide.
0: That would be great. And I have not had a chance yet to try the uh, the ones you sent me, but I'm really looking forward to it. It hasn't been a beer day for me since I got them, and so uh, I'm just waiting until this weekend to get into them.
1: There we go. And then our last two pieces of feedback are on the, the little question that we posed in last episode, the least used but most important tool in your brew house. And Redditor T TLens wrote to say... My least used but very important tool, my hydrometer. I very rarely take a gravity measurement. Could I improve my beer by doing so? Most likely. Am I going to start? Probably not. I like the beer I make, and that works A-OK for me. And, you know, that's a perfectly valid point. I know a number of brewers who don't bother with the hydrometer anymore. They figure, I've got my brewing process down, and I don't need numbers.
0: Yeah, really, um... You know, that makes perfect sense. Uh, I use my hydrometer religiously. I probably take four or five gravity readings every time I brew. But if you don't want to, you don't have to.
1: Yep, it's still going to be beer. And then the last piece of feedback on the uh, least used but most important tool, and it's one that I'm embarrassed to say I didn't think about when we did this, because it's probably the most on-point answer, comes from Max Spang. It says, I just listened to the most recent experimental brewing podcast, and you posed the question of, What is the most important and least used tool in the brewery? I came up with my answer fairly quickly. It has got to be my fire extinguisher. I have an old school propane setup, which means there's a fairly substantial open flame in the middle of my garage when I brew. While I've never actually had to use my trusty red cylinder, should the occasion ever arise where I needed it, I'd be glad it's there. Brew days do typically involve the consumption of alcohol, you know, which means those of us in control aren't always 100% aware of everything happening. While on the subject, did you know that along with regular visual inspection of the gauge and components, you're supposed to flip your extinguisher upside down every few months and firmly tap it with a rubber mallet to make sure the powder inside hasn't compacted? I recently learned this and thought it might be a good tidbit to share. And you know what? It is a good tidbit to share.
0: Yeah, man. It's something I didn't know. But I mean, we should note that not all fire extinguishers use powder, uh, there are five types. There's water, powder, foam, CO2, and wet chemical. You are pretty likely to have a powder fire extinguisher, though, because it's good for class A, B, and C fires. So it pretty much covers everything. But, you're not- yeah. <laughs> yeah. But on the other hand, uh, just, you know, if you have a foam fire extinguisher, don't turn it upside down and start banging on the bottom. It won't do any good. And you may find yourself covered in foam.
1: Yeah, and Max is absolutely right, though, about the importance of a fire extinguisher. Maybe we never need to use it, but maybe we always have one on hand. I have one in the brewery, and I have one in the kitchen.
0: You know, I was just going to say exactly the same thing, man, and I have one in my car also.
1: There you go, because after all, cars do spontaneously combust in, in Oregon.
0: <laughs> yeah, they do, man.
1: <laughs> all right, well, hey, I think that's enough feedback. I think it's time for us to have... Here.
0: Yeah, I think it sure is. So we're going to take a quick break here. We're going to head over to the pub. And when we come back, we'll be talking about the beer life. So please stick around. Mecca Grade Estate Malt is a craft malt house owned and operated by the Klon family on their beautiful Central Oregon High Desert Farm. Their eighth generation Oregon farming family grows and malts all of their own specialty grain creating malts that are rare, remarkable, and bursting with flavor. Malt is the foundation of your beer, so why settle? The best beers deserve Mechagrade. For more information, please visit Mechagrade.com. When I'm done brewing, I want to be done brewing, not waiting around for my work to cool. With the Hydra, the Corny Pillar, and the other great chillers from Jaded, I can be done when I'm done. No more waiting 20 minutes for the wort to cool enough to add whirlpool hops. No more messing with cleaning and sanitizing counterflow or plate chillers. With the super-fast immersion chillers from Jaded, you can chill your wort in minutes without all the hassle. Jaded chillers aren't just works of art. They're the fastest, most effective chillers you can buy. Check them out at jadedbrewing.com. Over here to the Experimental Brewing Pub at the corner of everywhere and nowhere in your town, wherever you are, we've pulled up a couple stools to the bar and we're ordering beers. Uh, what are you having today, Drew?
1: I'm having an Eagle Rock Ginger Saison because it's finally warm down here in Los Angeles. The past couple of days have been over 100. Yay. And I need something that's, well, a little bit more light and refreshing on the palate than some of the stuff I've been having. So, the Ginger Saison from Eagle Rock, it's 5.1%. So, a nice little, not quite sessionable, but, you know, pretty close, close enough for government work. Uh, and it's bright, it's tangy, it's zippy, it's lightweight, and it's fun. And I also really like ginger, so it plays right into my wheelhouse.
0: Cool, man. That sounds delicious. Uh, I may have you beat on the light, zippy, and fun uh, area, though. I'm drinking a beer called Rattle On from Rohrbach Brewing in Rochester, New York. It is a Rattler. It's a, a light beer, maybe like a blonde ale, something like that, combined with lemon juice. And it's made by our good, dear friend and uh, former Igor, Nikki Forster. She was kind enough to send me some, uh, sent some to Drew too, but I guess maybe he's saving his for a hotter day. If you have a chance to get a hold of this beer, do it. It is delicious. You open it up, the lemon aroma comes up at you immediately. We had a day the other day that was 103 degrees here, so I opened it up for that, and, man, it was the perfect beer for that kind of weather.
1: Yeah, I'm kind of happy to see that Rattlers are kind of catching on. So, In fact, we're going to talk a little bit of some stuff that's kind of adjacent to that in a moment. But in the meanwhile, I did really want to take a moment to... Thank Nikki for sending us the beer, but more importantly than the beer, sending us a very lovely note.
0: Yeah, I know, man. It's it's nice to know that all this work is appreciated, huh?
1: Indeed. So why don't we actually jump into the stories that are kind of about things that are Rattler adjacent? All righty, let's do it. All right, and the first one, of course, if you've listened to the podcast, you guys know that I am a big cream Ale fan. I did a whole freaking episode of The Brew Files on Creme Ale. I talked about it for 45 minutes. I could probably talk about it for another forty-five.
0: As As Arlo Guthrie said, uh, I'm not proud or tired.
1: <laughs> but, I mean, seriously, like, Jenny Cream was one of the cornerstone beers of my youth. I would probably drink more of it if it was more regularly available to me out here. There's only a couple places that carry it. But in very much this sort of debate about flavored beer and things like Rattler... Yeah, the, where's the flavored beer trend going? Jenny actually makes a number of beers now, including like a hazy IPA, which is what? And they make a ruby red Kolsch, and they have a salted caramel porter. But let's face it, really what I know them for and what you know them for is the Genesee Cream Ale. And they've announced a new lineup, including their original cream Ale, but now they have one for the summer that's flavored with lemon and strawberry. So get into that kind of fruity super trend, and what makes me interested about it is i want to see how it f- it's flavored because obviously the lemon plays right into the rattler just like the rattle on that you that you just are having right and lemon is very very traditional i'm usually very mixed about the idea of adding strawberry to beer flavor because normally i think it doesn't work and normally in order to get it to work you have to use something that tastes fake so i'd be curious to see how that one is but at the same time to me, that uh, like in the discussion that we had in the last episode where we're talking about you know what is beer flavored beer was, you know what what's a good trend in beer flavors what's a bad trend in beer flavors I'm assuming to you Denny like this one would come in a little bit more uh, traditional I,
0: I'm I would be a little bit leery of it uh just because the the lemon and the Rattler really complemented the beer and you could still tell it was a beer. By the time you get lemon and strawberry or, you know, some other flavors in there, you're kind of, like, getting into the area of things that, like, define the beer as opposed to support the beer. But, you know, you don't know until you taste it. No,
1: this is true. But uh, I'm really curious to see that because the other thing that we're seeing a lot of is the rise of, I mean, for lack of a better way of putting it, spiked seltzer, hard water. Right. Uh, all these flavored waters, you know, we talked a little bit about it with uh, Sam Adams and Boston Beer Company. And the fact that Boston Beer Company, before their purchase of Dogfish Head, has been making more money off their cider line, the Angry Orchard, their twisted tea line, and then also their spiked water line. And I think theirs is uh, truly, uh, truly spiked water. But this is a big rising trend now where if you look at Overall beer growth, yeah, even in the craft sector, you know, IPA is still the the monster there. But a good portion of growth in the malt beverages is back again in this world of what's called FMBs, flavored malt beverages, which the seltzer waters qualify as because most of the time, it, let's face it, the alcohol is coming from a malt fermentation that's been filtered. Um, and so this category is massively growing rapidly growing and it's really kind of interesting to see and I don't know what it says to me about people's taste or what people are thinking about in terms of what they want to have in terms of beer or a beverage but it is really sort of strange because they're showing like um, F&Bs I think according to the recent retail uh, trends or the spike seltzers I should say uh, showing 23.3% growth just over volume. Um, and things like White Claw are up 320% in terms of sales. It's kind of sort of playing in, I think, playing into some of that same realm of uh, health consciousness. All right, It's not quite as weird as, say, wellness beers, but it's still sort of like going, wait, hold on. You guys do know this is still an alcoholic beverage, right?
0: I don't know how I feel about this and if I would personally drink them or not. On one hand, I would say that, okay, I'm down to drinking beer only two days a week to keep the calories down, and these might be you know a way to have a drink and not worry about all the calories and carbs. On the other hand, I'm not sure I want what they describe here as berry-flavored, bubbly, boozy bliss, you know? <laughs> what are you talking
1: about? That's exactly what I think of when I think of you. <laughs>
0: yeah right that's me all over right uh you know i guess it's just one of those things i would have to try one and see because i I am definitely of two minds on them
1: yeah the couple i've had they're okay i mean they're not anything i'm gonna race out and seek but if you offered me one I, i wouldn't throw it in your face I mean, um,
0: I, I'm, not, I'm not looking for alcoholic soda pop. And so if these are going to be sweet or something like that, then they're definitely not for me.
1: Uh, the ones I've had have all been more like really what they say, spike seltzer, right? So not, uh, not sugary, not sweet. But I mean, they do have fruity aromas and that sort of stuff with them. But it's more like sparkling water.
0: Yeah, I mean, if it, if it was something like sticking a lime slice into a glass of sparkling water, I might be able to get behind it.
1: And, of course, I've seen craft breweries start to make these, you know, because it's not that hard of a process. Just a lot of care in order to kind of keep your flavors at an absolute minimum. But, look, at the homebrew level, if you want spiked seltzer, go fill a keg with some water, add your flavoring of choice, and then drop a fifth of vodka into it. It's a much easier process.
0: It seems like it would be difficult for most craft breweries to make, though, because you've got to... Uh filter out all the whatever it is you brew until it's clear and i don't know many people who are set up for that
1: oh i i suspect most of them are cheating and just making a sugar wash
0: yeah but that's distilling then and that would be no illegal. no no
1: no no not not making a sugar oh, wash no uh, right
0: right not not distilling it just yeah right just just fermenting out sugar water and doing it that way
1: yeah hmm. which I, I i'm not certain about how the tax code works on that but i think that doesn't qualify as beer has beer So that would be interesting. But, yeah, I think there are a number of smaller places that are literally just making sugar water, fermenting it, and then flavoring it. But you don't really have any evidence of that, right? You're just surmising. I've seen some breweries talk about their process, and that's what they're doing.
0: Okay, great, yeah. But I
1: I don't know the extent to which it's being done. Yeah.
0: Right. Okay, well, if any of you out there know of a brewery doing that, uh, let us know. Or if you're a brewery doing it, let us know. Uh, We'd like to find out.
1: And now, of course, last story for the week, talking about good things inside the craft beer world. You guys will remember uh, last year we actually interviewed the SoCal Seven the Pan Los Angeles Latino Homebrew Club. And, you know, kind of really cool, a bunch of those guys are actually either opening up breweries, or they've started breweries, and they're actually up and operational now, so we now have a handful of Latino-founded you know, founded breweries that are appearing here in L.A., which makes perfect sense. But craftbeer.com, uh, they have an article that they put up this week called L.A.'s Latina Brewers are Seeing a Cultural Shift, and they actually they interview three members of the Cevaceros, uh, women uh, of Latin heritage. And talking about the brewing world that they're working in and how things have changed and what they're they're seeing and I just really wanted to give a shout out because of course uh, uh, one of the one of the homebrewers uh, featured in there is also a member of the Falcons even though she's now over in Iowa so I just wanted to say
0: hi Lily <laughs> really and as somebody from Iowa I'd like to say get the hell out of there no, no, <laughs> no not really.
1: Yeah, my friend uh, Liliana Madrid, she uh, works at the Jackson Street Brewery in Iowa. So yeah, she is, she's been around the beer world for a good long while, but this actually really, this article really actually, you know, makes me happy to see because not only are we talking about Latinos in homebrew, but we're also now talking about the women Latin influence and also talking about the different flavors that they see, uh, coming in from their heritage and coming into the beer world. So, where we kind of think you know at least in a lot of the you know anglo culture about uh, traditional beer flavors like we were just talking about lemon lemon goes pretty well into beer or you know even the spices that we use now what we're starting to see is more of those uh, latino mexican you know central american type of flavors also coming up and rising up as traditional beer flavors because well they're traditional beer flavors from their heritage or traditional flavors from their heritage that can work into beer
0: Yeah, man, it's a wonderful article, and it's a great trend. We'll put a link to it on the website so you guys can check it out, too.
1: Yep. So there we go. Uh, Make sure you uh, reach out and support your local home brewing of all stripes and colors.
0: (laughs) That's right. Well, let's uh, finish up the beers, uh, leave a tip for the bartender, and hit the road, shall we? Amen. Okay. We're going to take a quick break, and when we come back, we'll be over in the brewery talking about, what else? Brewing stuff. Please stick around. Yakima Chief Hops is a 100% grower-owned global hop supplier located in the Pacific Northwest with a mission to connect family hop farms to the world's finest brewers. Yakima Chief's CryoHops represent the most innovative technology in hop processing, using a patent pending cryogenic separation process which preserves the components of each hop fraction. CryoHops pellets provide intense hop flavor and aroma, reduced vegetal flavors, and increased yield. Available now to commercial and home brewers. Learn more at yakimachief.com. Are you having trouble finding enough time to homebrew and give attention to the other important things in your life? Is your newest Brewed IPA experiment coming at the expense of other obligations? Don't neglect partner or pet. Brew with the Genesis Fermenter. Learn why at GenesisFermenter.com and find them wherever Brewcraft USA products are sold. Sitting here in the brewery with all this nice stainless steel stuff, uh, these cool grandfather glycol chilled fermenters that we're using these days. Uh, and uh, we're going to be talking about yeast, mentioning fermenters.
1: Yep, some yeast and some HomebrewCon stuff. And both these pieces actually come from White Labs because I thought these were kind of cool. They had had their hands on what they'd been calling White Labs uh, 862 otherwise known as cry havoc now of course i'm gonna walk around all day thinking cry havoc and let slip the dogs of war you haven't read shakespeare's Little you've read it in the original klingon um (laughs) sorry (sighs) um, but they had been calling it cry havoc and i don't recall it being available recently do you or at least i haven't used it recently
0: you know, I've never used it, and uh, to tell you the truth, I don't use White Labs very much. There's nobody here in town that sells it, so I have no idea.
1: Yep. And Meanwhile, I'm down here in California, so we see it all over the place. But Cry Havoc was Charlie P's, uh, I don't know, I guess his house strain, still is his house strain, and kind of a hybrid yeast. He claims it's good for both ales and lagers, different temperature ranges.
0: And we should let people know that it originally came from Budweiser.
1: Ah, there you go. I had forgotten that part. Yeah. Um, but they've they've decided that they're re-releasing it now. But instead of calling it Cry Havoc, they're now going to call it Charlie's Fist Bump. So give <laughs> Charlie a fist bump and use his yeast. Uh, so look out for WLP 862, Charlie's Fist Bump. And I remember when it first came out, there were a lot of people who really dug it and were claiming that it was really sort of a multi-tool.
0: Yeah, well, I mean, you look at like something like uh, SAF Lager 3470 or, you know, the Y-East uh, 2124 that's the same thing in wet form. You know, I, I use 3470 for both ales and lagers because I find it a lot cleaner than US05, which a lot of people think is clean, but it isn't. And
1: staying in San Diego, White Labs has been running for, I don't know, the past two, three maybe longer, uh, time makes no sense to me anymore, uh, years, they've been running what they call their vault, which has been their way of having people order specialty strains, sort of low-production strains that they don't want to necessarily bring up, do all the propagation on, and then not be able to sell. So yeah, you know, people would pay them money ahead of time, and then when the strain got up to a certain threshold of orders, which I think has been 150, uh, they would go and make that yeast strain and then put it out for sale and deliver it to the people who had pre-ordered it. So they announced that they are going to do all of their strains in the vault, no matter how many orders have been made. And they will release all of them on 7-1, so July 1st. The only exception is if a strain actually hits 150 orders before that point, it'll go immediately into production. So if there's been a yeast strain that you've been wanting to play with in the vault that is, well, you know, never going to see the light of day because pre-orders would be too low, this is your chance. Go to whitelabs.com slash yeast-vault, and you can place an order there for any of their strains and know that you're going to get it sometime around July 1st. And they haven't told us yet what it is, but they say something new is coming to the vault after that point. So kind of interesting. Get a chance to order your rare strains right there.
0: It's it's a very interesting idea, so let's see what they do with it. Yep. All right. And
1: as we've been saying, HomebrewCon is coming up. It's coming rapidly. And we're all going to have some fun. Uh, Wanted to talk about a couple things that we're psyched about. Obviously, the party that we're throwing with uh, Country Malt, as we said in the opener. Come see us there. But also, if you haven't listened to the brew files, you may not have heard. Our brew files sponsor, Atlantic Brew Supply, we're going to be doing an experiment with them. So they're going to be pouring an experiment at their bar, at the booth, in the HomebrewCon Con Expo Center. And you're going to be able to take a triangle test there and see if you can guess the odd beer out. And then if you want to know both what the results were, but also more importantly, what the experiment was, you can come and listen to our live podcast, which will be the next day on Friday. And then, of course, you can come hear the results and find out what the experiment is the next day on Friday at the Country Malt uh, Homebrew Group booth as we're doing that podcast you know we'll have folks from Atlantic on, we'll talk about the experiment and then we'll figure out just how many people got it right and how many people got it wrong and whether or not something makes a difference what that something is you'll have to wait to see
0: yeah unfortunately we don't have the uh, booth number for atlantic brewing supply handy right now but uh, you can find it if you're there so head to the trade show floor look for atlantic brew supply go by and take the challenge participate in the experiment
1: and don't forget you tell them that you came there because you heard about them on experimental brew and the brew files now outside of that a couple things you know it's always great to look at look through the sessions and of course denny and i are always running around and so it's Really hard for us to make the sessions because we're kind of busy. But there are a couple in there that I spotted that, obviously, I want to go see. I know I'm making at least one of them. And uh, that that would be the first one that I want to go see, which is Brewing Simple. Great beer with less effort and more fun on June 27th at 2 to 3.
0: You know, that's going to be one of the only two that I'm going to be able to see. And the other one I'm in also.
1: (laughs) Go figure. (laughs) But uh, there are a couple of other ones in there that that I spotted that made me go, ooh, yeah, that one, I want to see. So there's uh, Brewing with Oats by our good buddy, Chino. Uh, He's going to be talking about Brewing with Oats. And, of course, you guys know I love oats. So the other ones I want to see, Ron Pattinson has had his back up over the fact that, well, everybody in the world seems to misinterpret the ever-living hell out of Scottish beer. And so he's giving a talk called Macbeth, The Brutal Truth About Scottish Beer. You know, if you if you look through the BJCP guidelines, you'll notice in the last rev, they made some changes, largely because Ron's been making a lot of noise.
0: <laughs> yeah, well, I don't know, man. Maybe some people take beer too seriously.
1: Well, or maybe some people want to get the history right, uh, even though beer history is sort of cloudy.
0: Yeah.
1: Um, and then the last one that I spotted that made me go, oh, yeah, that one. Uh, homebrewing, microcomputers, and microbrewing homebrew, the Smithsonian research on homebrewing and the craft beer history. And uh, that's being given by Teresa McCullough, who is the Smithsonian fellow in charge of, well, sort of the craft beer research wing you know, and understanding beer history here in America. And so it's kind of cool because if you were back in the 1970s and you said the word homebrew to people, the thing they would think of wouldn't necessarily be beer. It was also computers because the most famous California homebrew club, was the homebrew club out of San Jose and Santa Clarita, the whole Silicon Valley area that spawned Apple. So Apple computers started out of of what was called the homebrew computer club. Um, And so it'd be kind of cool to see if she's tying those histories together, but also to see uh, what sort of beer history she's managed to dig up. So I'm looking forward to that.
0: The other seminar I'm going to be involved in is one called Myth or Legit. It's going to be me, Ron Minkoff, Jeff Gladish, Amanda Burkhemper, and Martin Brungard. And we're going to be tackling some of the uh, things you hear about brewing and beer and giving you our opinions and maybe even some facts about uh, if they're real issues or if it's just all a myth. It's all a myth. Everything's a myth. <laughs> yeah, well, it's it's a myth take to be doing this. Out. Stop. <laughs> so, uh... I'm sorry. I'm sorry. And off to the closet with you. All right. And
1: I think that's enough brewing business. But we want to know what you guys want to see at HomebrewCon. What sessions are you going to want to watch live? And don't forget, AHA members, you can always log in later to be able to watch and listen to the seminars that, well, you didn't get a chance to see. That's one of the
0: benefits of being an AHA member. Yeah, man. That's what I'm going to have to do for sure. Time to move on to the lounge. Cool. We're going to take a quick break here. And when we come back, we're going to be over in the lounge. Listening to Drew talk to Mike Karnowski from Zebulon Brewing. Stick around. We're going to be right back. The Wild Rustic Spring private collection from Y-East offers a selection of yeast and bacteria cultures characteristic of Belgian and sour styles to pair with the new season. 3725 Beer de Gard, 3031 Saison Brett Blend, and 5223 Lactobacillus Brevis are available April through June at your local homebrew shop, exclusively from our private culture collection. These are the strains that exemplify the beers of Europe in Cezanne, Lambic Styles, Go's, Brett Beers, and more. And now you can use them to create world-class beers worldwide. No matter the direction you take these wild, rustic cultures, they'll become your new tradition. Find out more about which styles pair best with this release at whyeastlab.com. This episode
1: is brought to you by Brewers Publications, publisher of none other than Simple Home Brewing by two guys named Denny Kahn and Drew Beecham. Maybe, just maybe, you've heard of them. If you want to streamline your brew day, make great beer, and have a blast in the process, head over to BrewersPublications.com and buy a copy of Simple Home Brewing.
0: Just about time it's just about time Don't you think it's about time? We talked about beer. Okay, this is the part where everybody sings beer 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 beer, beer We're in the lounge now, and it's time to check out an interview that Drew did with Mike Karnowski of Zebulon Brewing in Weaverville, North Carolina. Where the heck is Weaverville?
1: So you're in Asheville. You take a right-hand turn, and you go until you run into a quaint little town. You go, you find its firehouse, and then you look next door and behind it in an alley.
0: <laughs> so Mike is in the alley next to the Weaverville firehouse.
1: Something like that. It, if you didn't know where it was at, I don't know how you would be able to find it. So to set the stage for this, this was back when Denny and I and Marshall, we did the BYO Boot Camp uh, there in Asheville, North Carolina, which was a great time. We had a lot of fun doing it. And I arrived there after a nice long flight from L.A. and somewhere else. And, you know, showed up, got a got a lift, and went straight to uh, Weaverville right during the middle of uh Asheville rush hour, which was fun particularly compared to an L.A. rush hour.
0: <laughs> yeah, really, man, I'll bet. Yeah, and I showed up,
1: and Mike's little brewery is an odd little space. If you follow him online, he is constantly doing very interesting projects. Um, he is very much an experimental brewer, but not in the way that we've been talking about, where people are throwing very strange ingredients into beer to be experimental. He's working with, like, Ron Pattinson to make historical beers. He's working to do this whole series of porters that were, you know, sort of pre-legality porters, like things that people used to do with Porter before they kind of formulated a all malt type porter. Um, just he's got a very interesting mind, and of course he's been around the beer world for a very long time. So he's seen all sorts of different flavors of things that people are doing. And this is kind of what he settled on, including a very odd operational model where the tap room is open for I think eight, ten hours a week? Something like that, yeah. Yeah, so if you if you blink, you'll miss it because it's hidden. And if you blink, you'll miss it because it's never open. But if you get a chance, you need to go to Zebulon because Fantastic Beers by a really interesting guy.
0: Yeah, and I'll just mention here, too, that Mike has written a book called Homebrewing Beyond the Basics. It's a real good book. Uh, check it out if you have a chance. And, and of course, Mike is in Homebrew All-Stars. Yes, that's true. He's in Homebrew All-Stars also, so if you have a copy of Homebrew All-Stars, and why don't you, you can uh, check out Mike in there too. But in the meantime, sit back, grab yourself a beer unless you're driving, and take a listen to Drew talking to Mike Karnowski of Zebulon Artisan Ales.
1: So this is the the 1917 Whitbread, one percenter, so World War One era beer, and uh, what? how much malt? It wasn't much, right?
2: It was like four and a half pounds of malt for almost fifteen gallons of beer. There's some, you know, some uh, invert syrup in there as well, like pound and a half invert. But it's it's tough mashing that little, you know, with that little bit of malt. Yeah, it's not even worth trying to establish a grain bed. You know, I found it's best just that, you know, if you have room in your mash, just add all the sparge water, give it a stir, and just drain it.
1: So you're batch sparging on the professional scale.
2: Yeah, just because it's, you know, trying to keep a, a grain bed that's, you know, two inches deep uh, from getting disturbed. It's just not worth it, mm-hmm. worth the
1: time. So why why make this beer?
2: I don't know. It just seems very contrarian, you know, and if there's anything I'm a contrarian. And, uh, you know, who else has made a 1% alcohol beer? You know, it's, uh, it's just, it seems, I, I, I try to not give people what they want. I try to give them what they need. And I think what they need is low alcohol beer. You know, all, all these people just slam in tall boy cans of 9% alcohol, double IPA. I think that we need to kind of talk about. How much alcohol is in there? A four-pack of 16-ounce double IPAs is like, you know, that's a half a bottle of Jack Daniels. And But but people are like, oh, but it's got cartoon characters on the can. It's totally – how about – you know. And it's made with Fruity Pebbles. Or- right. It's, it's, it's good for you. But uh, I don't know. I'm just uh, getting old now where – I'm just not interested in a lot of alcohol, you know. And people tell me, "Oh, the alcohol is well hidden in this beer." I'm like, I don't want it well hidden. <laughs>
1: I want you to know what you're drinking.
2: I, I, yeah. So I don't know. It's just as I've gotten older, I'm looking for low, you know, beer that satisfies but is lower alcohol content.
1: Well, and, um, and I was gonna say, I mean, to me this this tastes like a like a good substitute for a glass of iced tea. Mm-hmm. You know, something, yeah, something that you're just drinking.
2: Yeah, it's beery enough where if you're somebody like me that just, you know, you just drink out of habit almost mm-hmm. after 30 plus years of just lifting a pint and sticking it in my face, that, you know, a couple pints go by, you're not thinking, oh, this is wimpy beer or whatever. It's <laughs> just, it tastes good and it's thirst quenching. And that's really all I'm looking for. Mm-hmm. uh in a beer for the most part I'm not looking to get loaded I'm looking for something that's tasty and thirst quenching and uh a 1% alcohol beer does it for me uh you know and if 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 you get to the point where you're like all right I've drank 7 pints of 1% beer I'm just feeling bloated then you know you switch off and have an imperial stout or uh,
0: or a whiskey or,
2: yeah there's so many other things to drink so I don't know I just thought it would be fun to do and, you know, one of my goals is always to, to um, bring Ron Pattinson's uh, uh, work to uh, into fruition. You know, he he, uh, he spends all of these, the, this time in the basements of breweries and uh, museums photographing his old brewer's logs, and uh, he never gets to actually taste them. Most people never get to taste them. Mm-hmm. So it seems like for him to put all this work into making, uh, re, you know, uh interpreting these recipes and bringing them into the modern time that the least I can do is, uh you
1: know, brew them up and let people try them. And- well, I think it's interesting to have a taste of the past. But before we get too much further, I think we actually have to, you know, back up and do a little introductions. Because uh, welcome to the contrarian world of Zebulon. And I'm sitting here with Mike, Mr. Mike. Say hi to everybody. Hello. <laughs> well, and of course, give everybody your last name, too. Uh, Mike Kronowski,
2: Zebulon artisan ales, right outside of uh, Asheville, North Carolina, in the beautiful
1: small town of Weaverville. Well, I was gonna say, and and you're hidden away. Like my driver, who got me up here, you know, because I came straight off the plane from L.A. and very first thing, grabbed a grabbed a driver and came up here. My driver got lost because uh, you're you're in an alleyway. It's oh yeah,
2: we're we're a ridiculous brewery. Uh, I mean, I. I'm kind of amazed that uh, that we have almost I think we have like 100 percent five star ratings, uh, and I don't know I'd give us maybe a three and a half. I mean we're we're impossible to find, no parking, you know ridiculous hours, curmudgeonly owner, <laughs> rarely <laughs> an IPA on tap. Well, I was going to say
1: curmudgeonly owner <laughs> who is also the bartender who is also a good. Oh yeah, it's it's just me and my wife. We don't have any other employees. <laughs> so and. But I mean, you've been around the beer industry for a good long while. This is not this is not your first trip around the rodeo.
2: No, this is just my first uh, brewery that I've owned myself. Um, I started home brewing in uh, in 1986, but even before that, my dad made wine. So uh, we had some grapevines in our backyard. So I I just grew up with carboys bubbling around me, and you know my dad dragging me to the the winemaking shop. Uh, and so uh, I, w- I was just familiar with fermentation, and then um, I had joined the Army uh, as soon as I got out of high school and was in uh, Tacoma, Washington, and we took a little uh, road trip up to uh, Pike's Place Market in mm-hmm. Seattle, and there was a little homebrew shop there, and uh, uh, I told my friend, I was like, hey, let's go in here. My dad made wine. I know about this stuff. So... Um, we went in, bought a little, you know, homebrew kit, and I mean, the, the, the homebrewers today have no idea what it was like in 1986. <laughs> I mean, just the swollen cans of mutton's mm-hmm. extract on the shelf, and the hops are just some horrible dirtweed-looking uh, Ziploc bags that are sitting at room temperature. And, um, and, and they the, were more brown than green. Oh, they were all brown. And then the, uh, the the yeast were just you know a little pack of uh, yeast under the cap of that uh, swollen can of extract. Um, oh my my first capper that I got was one you don't even see anymore. It was just basically think of it like a big spoon and you put it over the top of the cap and whacked it with a hammer.
1: I have one. Of <laughs> you those. got one of
2: those? <laughs> oh my god! It was like every fifth bottle would be like boom boom. <laughs> it's such a mess, such a ridiculous capper, but um, yeah. So you know, we 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 made some homebrew, and um, I started getting into it as a hobby. And every place I would move, I would uh, you know try to find the local homebrew shop, mm-hmm. and you know that's difficult in like Manhattan. Uh, there was just like a a couple shelves on some hardware store, you or,
1: or somebody's packy has has some.
2: Yeah, that the, the, I joined the local homebrew club in New York City, and there was some guy who was selling homebrew equipment at the at the uh the meetings so i picked up carboys and brought them back on the path train to jersey and uh (laughs) so then uh my wife and i we moved to uh new orleans uh this is like 91 i guess 90 91 and uh i was mail ordering off uh to you know minnesota and uh and, and california for my homebrew supplies and finally, I just had an epiphany and I just told my wife, I'm like, I'm going to open up a homebrew shop. And it was the first homebrew, uh, shop in, in New Orleans. And, uh, it's called Brew Haha and it was right on Magazine Street. And we ran that for 13 years. And so, you know, I brewed, uh, twice a week mm-hmm. for 13 years and that adds up a lot. And then, um, you know, I kind of lost count after 2000 batches. Probably close to three thousand at this point. Um but so after Hurricane Katrina we shut down the homebrew uh, shop just because it would have been a long struggle. Mm-hmm. You know, just we weren't making that much money. Homebrew shop owners is you know, you know, are struggling for the uh, most I was
1: part. gonna say apparently by your choices of careers, you're not a fan of making money. No, I don't care about money. Yeah. <laughs> um so we
2: shut down the home the uh the homebrew supply shop after Hurricane Katrina and we decided to mo- to move put a two year plan in effect. Um so while while we were uh getting ready to move I I uh, got a job at a uh, rum distillery in New Orleans Celebration Distillation and I was a head distiller there uh for uh, a year and a half or so before I left. And that was fun. Um uh, distillation is is something I'm I'm fairly interested in um, still to this day. And uh so uh we just just decided to move to Asheville. It's it's a beautiful uh beautiful town. Uh the weather's fantastic and uh you know we got in 11 years ago back before it really exploded. Mm-hmm. Uh, right, you know if you tried to move here now I don't think I could af- afford a, a house at this point. Um but there were, I think there was maybe four breweries mm-hmm. when I moved here. And there's like you know close to forty
1: now. Um, and, how, and how many people in the like, there's greater... n- there's ninety thousand people. So man, I'm sitting here. I live in L.A. and we've got eighty three. Yeah, and that's what like twenty million people. Are. It's a ridiculous number of people. Yeah.
2: <laughs> yeah, I, I, I mean, I tell people now it is so oversaturated here, and I hear it's the same like San Diego mm-hmm. and other places. There's just too many breweries. So. <laughs> I mean, I hate to crush people's dreams. You know, there's so many home brewers like, I want to open a brewery. I'm telling you, unless you're opening in a town that doesn't have a brewery yet, or a very small brewery, or, population. yeah, just don't do it. I mean, if you're planning on opening a brewery in San Diego or Asheville, just stop. There's just it's so oversaturated. Wait a year or two, you'll be able to pick up all this used brewing equipment for pennies on the dollar because there's a big crash coming because mm-hmm. there's a lot of breweries. I just have uh, you know a lot of investors, partners involved. You know there're millions and millions of dollars involved in this, and there's just there's not enough uh, liver space to go around as far as you know tourists and the shelf spaces are just packed full of IPAs that are getting old.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: I just don't I don't think it's a good time. It's like if somebody asked me if they should get in the stock market right now, I'd be like, no, the whole thing's crashing, gonna come crashing down. Now's not the time to get in. And the same thing with the brewing scene. I, I, it's, it's really changing quickly. And um, I, I I hate to be a naysayer, but I I really, now is not the time to open uh, a craft brewery unless you're doing something really unique. Mm -hmm. Not just because your friends tell you you make a great IPA and amber ale.
1: That's just not going to cut it. I was going to say there are too many breweries that feel the same.
2: Yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah. There, there's a brewer around here that had a great quote. He's like, there's not too many breweries. There's too many breweries doing the same damn thing. And, uh, yeah, everybody it's, – it's it's all IPAs and coffee porters. It's It's just so boring. I mean we don't need more
1: of that. Well, and just to give people an idea, I mean I'm looking at your tap list here. In addition to this 1917 mild at 1% that you got – I mean, you do have uh, an IPA, but an original style IPA, so back in the day, right? It was,
2: yeah, it's an IPA from the 1850s, so it's uh, barrel-aged with Brett for cool. eight months and just East Kent Goldings and Maris Otter. Uh,
1: and then you got uh, Keller Pills, uh, uh, 1832 Stout, a Brett IPA, Beer Noel, an Appalachian Belgian Quad, Dry Hop Sour, and a Farmhouse saison, so uh, a sort of typical beer in there. Yeah, I mean why do it if if
2: somebody's already doing it? You know, there's like we said 40 breweries in Asheville. each of them have at least 2 to 3 IPAs. So you're talking 120 IPAs within 15 minutes. Why should I do it? I mean, I don't know. I'm just am frustrated with the the just the myopic tastes of the the beer drinking public uh for the most part right now. It's kind of like back in the uh, '90s when, when uh, you know, housefraus discovered the term "buttery shard, you know, "buttery chardonnays," <laughs> and then they just like, "Oh my God, I love buttery chardonnays!" And every every restaurant they go into, that's all they would order. So it kind of is a, a cascading effect where all these restaurants now have to have these over-oaked chardonnays mm-hmm. just because these people just learned one thing and then they stick with it
1: yeah. and people also, also called the sideways effect that tanked merlot and and boosted Pino. up a lot of Pino. mediocre
2: you yeah and so uh, the same thing kind of with ipa i mean i think a lot of people just don't even know what ipa stands for all they know is that if they walk into a bar they can order an ipa they're gonna have it and they're probably gonna be okay with it but that's stopping them from from trying so many different styles and, and uh, of beer out there that the fact that like eighty percent of the, the the beers being made are i p a s is just frustrating um you know I'm a little disappointed in the, the breweries that that's kind of all they're making, but then again they they're not like me they they've got a lot of debt they've got a lot of mm-hmm. overhead they've got employees they need to make a lot of money so i p a s are the way to do it they're quick
1: turnaround and um and they have a ready built audience as yeah the people who That's what they know. Sure. But uh, now I was gonna say, I mean, uh, in this space that we're in, I mean, this is a tiny little brewery. This is not going to expand into anything massive at any point. But
2: oh no, no, it's never going to expand anywhere. This is just it. It's a little 1,400 square foot old firehouse, and uh, it's a constant struggle (laughs) with space. Uh, It's it's like a big game of Tetris when I need to uh, set up for a bottling day, or you know. The barrel you need is always in the back underneath another barrel.
0: Well,
1: I, and I was noticing <laughs> the unique layout there on the barrels. You got uh, some, some barrel racks down there and then barrels perched in between. Just, yeah, it's, it's kind of, uh, pyramided up
2: like that because we don't have a forklift. There's no room in here for a forklift. So everything's, uh, got to be able to get at somehow or another. So, but it's fine. You know, it's, you know, it's kind of like if you ask a painter, "Just paint me anything." Mm-hmm. That's too it's too broad. You need to narrow it down. You know, the, the more narrow you get, the more creative uh, an artist can be. Mm-hmm. If you say, "I want you to do me painting," it's got to be just blue and black, and I want it, you know, of a, uh, a landscape. Also, a, a, a real artist is going to be like, "Oh, I'm getting all kinds of ideas," mm-hmm. you know, because you've really limited them. And, um, I feel the same way with a little tiny brewery like this that it forces you to be creative. It forces you to do things, um, that you would normally not do. And some of it is, you know, I'm not able to, to brew a lot of the beer styles that I love Mm -hmm. because I don't have a walk in cooler. You know, I can't really make, I don't have keg washer. I don't, I don't do draft beer. You know, so so everything I do has to be in cork and cage bottle condition bottles. And that limits me. I mean I can't really or you, do or you got
1: the corny kegs hanging out. Oh
2: yeah, right? yeah. <laughs> I'm, I'm, I got a hundred some pinlock corny kegs that I use. It's just so much easier to, to clean those. But that's again, I have to go that direction because I don't have room in here for a keg washer. So it's easier to clean corny kegs. Um but I don't know, i I'm I'm cool with it. You know, it's, um, it is what it is, and there's no room to expand. And, uh, if anything, I would open up a, a, a another spot exactly like this, but just doing something completely different. You know, if, if, I think it would be perfect for me if I had like three little tiny breweries all in the outskirts of Asheville, each doing its own completely different thing. You know, one doing pre Cold War Czechoslovakian lagers, you know, and the other doing, uh, I don't know, maybe a hundred percent IPAs just to be a contrarian, say, you know, <laughs> the Zebulon IPA house. Yeah. I'm, I'm not against IPAs. It's just I can't really make them here. And, um, and they're kind of boring, you know, maybe I'd be a hundred percent Grodzitsky,
1: <laughs> At first, you'd have to, yeah, first, that's a, a hell of an educational field to climb. Yeah. So, but you got here to Asheville and then. I mean, obviously, you didn't just open this place up, right? So
2: no, I went to work at a Greenman Brewery, uh, which was one of the original breweries downtown, Um, and uh, ended up as their uh, specialty brewer. And worked there for seven years. Uh, Started Asheville's first sour program. Um, Made a lot of beers that are well known uh, to this day, like Schnozberry and Maceo, and some of those. Um, And then, you know, I had that seven-year itch. I just had. It's like it's now or never. Time to it's, move. Time to move. And, uh, you know, I'm happy I'm doing it. it. It's, it's one of those things I just had to do it. It was, I, I've been in the brewing thing for so long. I had to own my own brewery. Uh, and so it, it, who, you know, who knows how long it'll last? You know, mm-hmm. it could go till I retire, you know, in 15 years or so, or I might just get bored of it. Give it up, do something else. Open up an authentic Thai restaurant or something else that we need more of in uh, in Asheville. Or, you know, an, uh, an
1: IPA house after the fallout, right? Yeah, or meth lab. You know, <laughs> probably enough of those around the country. <laughs> Open up a vape store. That's what we really need. <laughs> oh boy. Well, so now we've covered we've covered like you know you have an eclectic list, right? You, you're you're off the the sort of beaten path, so what what excites you to to play with I mean, you talked about bringing Ron's recipes to life so that people could try them what, what else what else drives you
2: i don't know I'm, I kind of dig um uh, fermentations and how they pair with modern hops mm-hmm. um, i I really like how how it's tough to tell where the funk ends and the uh overripe tropical hops start you know and and they evolve really interestingly um so so yeah wild fermentations we do um all of our sour beers here are brewed with 100 ashville uh cool ship source yeast so there's no added yeast at all it's 100 you know wild yeast from the air um in, in, every time or is every it every time so um, no it? we 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 don't cool ship the wort every time we we've cool shipped and then and you captured and isolated it uh yeah we don't even isolate it we did we just got a culture that 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 tasted good to us and we you know put in a barrel and fermented a batch of beer in it and then we'll split that into two barrels and then into four barrels and sure. then 16 barrels um and they go into you know steamed barrels every time so there's no cross-contamination or anything um yeah th- I'm really concerned about all the people getting into cool ships. You know, it's, you know, just getting a cool ship and then putting your word into a beer and people are like, I am Canteon. It's like, dude, no, there's a lot more to it (laughs) than just putting sugar water out in the air and letting wild yeast. I mean, we're going to be awash in really nasty phenolic butyric beers unless people are willing to dump it but i'm afraid that people put so much time and and money into these right. beers that after 2 3 years they're
1: going to be like we got to put it out yeah. so there's so much hype so much so much love uh, labor put into into things that, yeah. yeah
2: i mean it's a fun idea but i don't know from my personal experience i got about a 20% success rate mm-hmm. of putting word outside and then it turning out good i don't know if it's just you know maybe other locations have uh, better success But uh, around here, just 80 percent of the time, you get this weird bag of balloons, uh, rubber uh, band-type phenol that just – does. it never ages out. If anybody tells you that phenols age out, (coughs) uh, I'm telling you it doesn't. I've got stuff that's four years old, five years old still, total
1: bag of balloons. That's gross. Phenols. You think how sensitive we are uh, organoleptically to these uh, to these phenols like parts oh, I'm per, super parts, sensitive yeah well parts per uh, parts per billion yeah, yeah. parts per trillion right yeah yeah those are those are not going to go away mm-hmm. at least not in any any of our lifetimes
2: no so I'm playing it safe I mean I obviously don't have room in here to be storing beer for a couple years and then just dumping it so i that's why I use uh, I just make sure that the, the yeast Culture that I capture makes decent beer, mm-hmm. and then of course you play around with it. You know, you learn how to tame it and keep the acidity under control with,
1: you know, IBUs and, and uh, you know. So you actually using hops to to beat back the lactobacillus and keep it down.
2: Yeah, that's one thing I think a lot of uh, breweries don't understand. I mean, they 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 get a, a big fooder and they pitch a big twenty barrel pitch of Rosalaire or sour mix in there. And then they wonder why after you know two batches it's just you know n- enamel stripping sourness with no complexity. It's just because lacto takes over, mm-hmm. and you really need to keep your pimpan strong with your lacto and uh, inhibit it. So, with my culture, I found that somewhere around you know 24 to 27 IBUs will keep it from souring for six months and then in between 6 months and 12 months it'll it'll sour down to you know 3.2 3.3 pH which is perfect cuz I, I want complexity in my sours i'm just i'm not interested at all in lacto bombs mm-hmm. to me they're so boring and uh undrinkable i mean I, I can't drink those things they they just upset my stomach and uh, i guess it's for kids that grew up with sour patch ki- candy or something that. Uh, or it's, you know, just who can make the sourest, typical American, you know, mm-hmm. bulls**t.
1: Well, I just remember in my first exposures to Canteon, yeah, you know, or going over to Brussels and drinking, like, a couple of the Lambic places, I would always have, you know, a sour stomach. I, I, I would refer to it as Canteon stomach. Yeah, and, and that's not even anywhere near sour, some of these uh, big ones. Okay, so... Mike, Mike Mike is doing my favorite thing. He's pouring me beers. So what have we got? Um, these are two. This is the
2: uh, the original IPA. Okay. And the one on your right has been barrel-aged for eight months. Which explains bre- the color. Cl- cl- Annie, And the one on the left is one that we just refilled the barrels up with. So that is a version that would never have really been consumed unless it was by the brewers in England. Right. And so that's just, you know, a couple of weeks old. It's 165 IBUs of East Kent Goldings
1: and just Maris Otter. Well, um, and what's interesting to me is, I mean, there's a, a stark color difference between the two. Because,
0: yeah.
1: um, I mean, because yeah. I mean, this one here, I it's, mean, it's, it's picked up. It's got a little more amberish yeah. kind of color. Um, I mean, and they're, and they're both, you know, I mean, don't get me wrong. I'm not saying that these are dark brown beers. I'm just saying that there's mm-hmm. a noticeable, sure. like, additional golding. So... Oh, yeah. The, wow. That's a big just even on the on the nose. It's huge. Mm hmm. Again, more and more of the hop and a little bit more clean. The There's one, just a background on it.
2: The, the, the young one. It, I mean, it's just got that mouth coating resin um, on it, which is fun. I mean, we just rarely get that much hop bitterness from a low alpha hop.
1: Well, yeah, what are you using?
2: It's all East Kent's.
1: Oh yeah, that's right.
2: And uh, I was I was happy this year. The East Kent's were like 6.7 alpha, which is really nice because when you get ones that are like 2.2, it's pretty soul crushing trying to get 160 IBUs with 2.2 alpha hops.
1: Well, and, and and not to mention the fact that you're gonna end up with oh you lose all that so tan and, what, and, and you can, get, oh yeah and, and the tannin and yeah. So when, let's say this is the, this is tasting the one of the bread. And yeah, I mean the nose instantly is like it's it's all that funk as opposed to the big hop character. I do think it's interesting that you're i mean it's almost like you're talking with the hops, using them as the way farmers do crop rotation. Yeah, you know, so you know, rotate things in and out of fields or put different different crops into you know replenish the soil. You're talking about rotating different hop levels in to essentially Beat back the the bad nutrients in the soil, aka the lacto here, in order, to, you know, control it a little. At least that's what it feels like to me. Uh,
2: yeah, I suppose so. It, you know, it's it's one of those things that there's science behind it, but it's more of a feel type thing. Mm-hmm. What I've been interested in is um, is, is New Zealand hops. Mm-hmm. You know, they all have this beautiful tropical character. And even the grapes that you grow there, you know, if you plant tower there, it tastes like pineapple, you know, and, uh, and the and the you know the the, the Sauvignon Blancs mm-hmm. there, very tropical. And I'm wondering if it's something about the soil, you know, maybe the nutrients in the soil. I think that would be something American hop growers might be really interested in if they find out, like, oh, we really need to crank up the potassium or magnesium levels or something. To and, and that would be able to get these uh, tropical characters in. In hops, I, I, it's, it's got to be something in the soil where, where anything they plant mm-hmm. gets tropical. I mean, it, I don't know. It'd, it'd be it, interesting to look into. It
1: is interesting, and then having uh, the 1850 with the bread in it and the longer aging. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's interesting. Almost all the hop note on the on the nose is gone. Mm-hmm. But then, yeah, as you're drinking the beer, you get all that funk, all the uh, you know, all those hay and barnyardy type things, and then. As you get down towards the finish, suddenly there's the hop, mm-hmm. and it's surprisingly bracing on the back end. It makes it more drinkable, though. It makes
2: you want a, another sip, really. Oh, yeah. To me, it's, it's, it's almost like an imperial version of Orval. Mm-hmm. you know. And if you know the history of Orval, it could be argued that Orval would be one of the last remaining uh, commercial
1: examples of a uh, historical pale ale, English mm-hmm. pale ale. Um, I mean, it's pale malt, sugar, mm-hmm. golden tops. Golding tops, a lot of dry hopping, mm-hmm. along with the bread. Yeah. So yeah, it, ma- it makes perfect sense. Man, th- that's really interesting though, to just to see that change. It, I'm assuming you prefer the longer age. Right? Yeah, the, the young one is just
2: a little too coarse. Uh, I found. I mean, it's fun, mm-hmm. but to me, it's almost like a hop tincture. Mm-hmm. Or a a sort of aperitif that you would maybe have, you know, before dinner. But, um, I don't know. Careful, you say the word aperitif, that's going to make me stick my pinky out as I'm drinking this. I'm a jaded when it comes to, uh, to hops. I need a lot of, of hop bitterness. Uh, I I just don't like sweet beers. So, um, I think they, and on hop, ibu calculators they should have a button you know have you been brewing for more than 20 years it just like it automatically cranks it up by like 20 ibus but yeah speaking of ibus you know we uh i did a uh, a lecture at a craft brewery, or at the national homebrew conference mm-hmm. a couple years ago about cohumulone
0: mm-hmm.
2: and we found that uh that high cohumulone cohumulone hops Uh, just give you a a, a much increased IBU Mm -hmm. because it isomerizes more quickly than the other uh, uh, alpha acids. So you're not getting a harsher bitterness, as as so many people are wanting to say. You just are literally getting more IBUs. And we did like 35 IBUs uh, calculated with 10 different hops. And it was basically a straight line on uh, measured IBUs after the fact Mm -hmm. with the the lowest – to the highest uh, cohumulone level, having like a 47% increase in measured IBUs. So that's something I just – I wish people would kind of embrace too is is thinking that cohumulone isn't an enemy. It just needs to be somehow worked into uh, IBU calculations.
1: Right. Well, I mean we had a a whole long set of experiments on the podcast and talks about – you know leading up to the, the grand statement is the IBU is a lie. Mm-hmm. And I mean, some of the some of the things that we were talking about was like, hey, you know, all these formulas that we use, they're formulated for one particular set of conditions. You know, the tensus was, you know, formulated for his homebrew equipment using whole leaf pellets or whole leaf hops. You know, when he was brewing and decided to put together a spreadsheet and a, a regression fit. Yeah, you know, so yeah, these numbers that we use, and you're perfectly right because I always think when I make an IPA. You know, I'll, I'll use a lot of the low coho hops for my aromas and, and everything else. And I tend to use a neutral hop for bittering. Um, uh, listeners of the podcast are about to roll their eyes because uh, I almost always use warrior or magnum, mm-hmm. depending upon what I'm doing. Um, uh, magnum generally my favorite, but warrior or magnum. And then if I'm making an IPA or if I'm making something that I want to, ha- that want to have a hop presence to, I'll usually go and throw a small charge of chinook in there as well. Cause I just want that kind of extra kick. Now I hadn't, I didn't know that the cohumulon uh, isomerizes much faster than that. So the extra kick I'm getting is literally a bump up in the IBU.
2: Plus Chinook's got an awesome flavor.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: A, a little tip to, to brewers out there, you know, making a New England IPA with Chinook is amazing. Everybody thinks, oh, Chinook, it's all resin and pine. It was total pineapple. It was. A, it's a beautiful and it's it's cheap. You can get Chinook out there for like five, six bucks a pound. Another one that turned out really cool is a cluster. Nobody loves cluster. Cluster is <laughs> the, the 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 forgotten hop because I it did, smells like blackberry and cat pee. It smells amazing. You do a New England IPA, do eight ounces at Whirlpool, eight ounces of dry hop. Tell me it's not a fantastic hop. All right, fine. I have a task to do. It's great. You guys. Should, you guys should. Uh, do you know try to save some of these old uh hop varieties that nobody wants to use anymore and uh you know and oh, do was, a little test of them
1: i was listening to somebody the other day and they were they were talking about some of the hops that they were using oh it was uh, Vinny from uh, russian river and uh, he was talking about some of the hops that he was using and things and and like he had as one of his missions that he was going to try and save brewer's gold he loved brewer's gold yeah I, <laughs> we all we all have our things <laughs> Yeah, yeah, Pride of Ringwood's pretty horrible. Yeah, no, I think, I, I, I think everybody wants it. to shoot Pride of Ringwood in the sun. Yeah. Um, the other one I, that I remember back when I started brewing, which was 99, except for the batches I did in college, 99 is when I started to take it seriously. But the hop I remember that, I don't even know if it's being grown anymore. Galena or something. Well, Galena, <laughs> but no, Eroica.
2: Aroika, yeah, that, that that's, I haven't that's, seen that in 20 years. That's an old
1: years. hop. I mean, but I like the flavor of it. Mm. So well, that ain't here no more. No, nope. S- save your old hops. Um, when we had a thing on on the podcast it, talking about how uh, Centennial it came about and the yeah. fact that Centennial was supposed to be discontinued, except for uh, Ralph Olson went out and stole some of the rhizomes and kept it going.
2: Simcoe, too, wasn't it? Like, Simcoe has been uh, around for, like, nine years. Nobody wanted it. and somebody yeah, but
1: Apparently, hop farming is just completely full of skullduggery. Yeah, I'm, I wouldn't want to be a hop farmer. <laughs> well, while, while we're having this, these beers, I have to ask you the, the, the question I will ask for every brewer, which is, omitting the word balance, describe your brewing philosophy. Culinary a perfectly valid way to say it yeah I,
2: I i get no inspiration from what other brewers are doing out there um i i get inspiration by watching like the chef's table or mind of a chef mm-hmm. and and seeing what these chefs are doing and it just hits home so much for me to hear these chefs talking about you know how they're they're struggling to find their voice and they want to do something with you know the, the 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 terroir of where they're at and uh and and I'm just like yes yes that's exactly what I'm trying to do as a brewer, um, and and you know that I, I think that brewers really are missing out by not talking to chefs, and and winemakers you know what mm-hmm. they they both deal with um, you know acidity mm-hmm. and, and, and tannins and flavor and and you know combinations of flavors and um I, I just think you could really uh we could learn uh learn a thing or two from uh from people
1: outside the industry well and what's interesting is i think i mean i've heard other people say before you know hey look i, I take inspiration by thinking about things culinarily and i've even said that before and, and i think usually how that ends up playing out in most people's minds is putting food in beer. Well, or or trying to recreate a food experience, right? You yeah. Know, so like I'm I'm infamous for doing uh, my clam chowder saison. Yeah. That I did one time because mm-hmm. Denny dared me to. Um, but it's interesting to hear you talk about it because I mean again like looking at the the beer list that you have, you're not taking uh, you're not you're not running that culinary across the idea of hey I'm trying to re- recreate a food experience.
2: So. No, it's, it's just for inspiration. I mean, that's the trouble is so many people take things so literally. Mm-hmm. So they're like, oh, I, I, you know, I want to get the synapses in your brain to think pizza. That these birds are like, oh, I'm just going to throw pizza in my beer. It's just, it's just the worst. It's so not creative. Mm-hmm. It, and um, you know, there's there's a lot of ways to get those synapses tingling you know to get it to think about pizza and it doesn't have to have anything to do with pizza in the glass
1: mm-hmm. so uh, well can can you give a good example of a beer that you created that you feel embodies that well i'll tell you i'll tell you a story where i get some of
2: my inf- uh, inspiration from i was watching uh, apocalypse now the the Redux version with mm. all the the extra scenes in it and there's this one scene wow, that's, that's a
1: long that's a long movie that way. it's good
2: yeah um, so there's a scene where they're going upriver on the boat and they stop at a little French enclave there with with you know because the French were in Vietnam before we were and there it's a it's a group of French people in this in the jungle trying to keep their French life going in the middle of the jungle so they're baking baguettes and then they're you know they're sitting around having a real like French dinner in the middle of the jungle, and I started thinking, you know what if they were Belgians and they're trying to brew beer how what would they you know what would they brew in the the Vietnamese jungle you know it would be a Vietnamese farmhouse ale and so that that got the idea the the wheels turning, and we did a collab uh with burial brewing here in town, and we did a, a Vietnamese farmhouse. With uh you know the stuff that you would find you know rice and mm-hmm. uh, lemongrass and ginger and all that stuff, and then I kind of took that farmhouse up Wizard of Oz style, and then would just drop it around the planet and you know say, all right, Ethiopian farmhouse mm-hmm. ale." And then you, uh, you know, you're, you start thinking. All right, what do I have to work with in Ethiopia? What, what are they known for? What are, are there any cool herbs or spices or starches? Oh, absolutely. And uh, you know, you could do it anywhere. You can put it in Manitoba. You could put it in uh, Cleveland. You could put it in uh, uh, the Yucatan. In each spot, it really makes you, as a brewer, you know, break out the cookbooks. Mm-hmm. And so that's kind of what I'm talking about. Is, is like we did a, a Tokyo-style goza, uh, and that – instead of the salt, we used white miso that was produced here in town. And instead of the coriander, we used pickled ginger. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, I didn't mention, but since we don't repeat any beers, we don't have any flagships. Every single beer we do is a new, different beer. That we didn't want to come up with a new cutesy name. Um So we just dedicate all our beers to, uh, to people that we love and respect. So, uh, yeah, this, this new, uh, IPA is for Anthony Bourdain, but the, uh, the Tokyo Goza was for, uh, Yoko Ono. Mm -hmm. Um, I was kind of worried that that was our first person we ever dedicated to a live person before. And she ended up in the hospital the next day. So I was worried that we were going to, we were jinxing people. So we kind of. Don't dedicate them to live people anymore.
1: Look, so you know, talking about the stuff that we're you know talking about, almost like translocation, right? Like pick it up and move it someplace else. Mm-hmm. as you're talking, uh, then I also see that you've got the culinary, what feels like a culinary inspiration and a little bit of a translocation idea with this Appalachian Belgian quad because it's got sorghum served from the area. Right. So you know, I mean, is that in that same that same vein then?
2: Yeah, it's definitely that that same mentality. You know, we're trying to, uh, you know, think. Oh, if you're a Belgian brewer and you're in the uh, the mountains of Appalachia, where like we are, it's like, well, they're, they're you know, it's a no brainer to to use this locally made uh, dark syrup. And uh, the the sorghum syrup's delicious. You know, it's it, it, a lot of people probably out there listening don't know
1: what sorghum syrup it is. Sorghum syrup is because it's so hyper local. Mm-hmm. Or I mean, I think the only ones who are using it, at least brewing-wise normally, are the people who are trying to do gluten-free beers.
2: Yeah,
1: yeah but that's different. That's not uh, cooked-down sorghum <coughs> syrup. That's
2: malted sorghum. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And so they're very different. The, the sorghum syrup that's made around here, the old-school way, they grow sorghum, which is a grass. And then they squeeze the grass through this ro- these rollers and get a, uh, a green juice out of it. So it's very much more like uh, uh, maple syrup. Yep. you know where they have this 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 juice with a little tiny bit of sugar uh, in it and they just cook it down over a whole afternoon and you end up with this you know dark delicious syrup that's somewhere between a molasses and a maple
1: syrup um I was going to say the times I've had it it has more minerality to it than maple syrup does
2: yeah but less than uh less than molasses yeah. so it's it's right in between there and um uh, it's just you know, to me, it's a no-brainer to use local ingredients. That's part of the the whole part of the good thing that, that the good path that craft beer has gone on is is the embracing of of using local ingredients. And we, we're lucky; we've got a, a great maltster here in town, Riverbend Malt, mm-hmm. uh, that makes really good quality malt. There's um, three or four maltsters just in North Carolina, and they're all making good product. We had one of them uh, make us some custom smoked brown malt for a project we have coming up with Ron Pattinson in a couple of months. Um,
1: Going like an old school
2: porter? Yeah. You know, every year we bring Ron to town. We fly him in from Amsterdam and we do a lecture tasting uh, for Asheville Beer Week. And so last year we did uh, a Relics, Lost and Forgotten Beer Styles. Mm -hmm. And they had, you know, like, you know, Arctic ales brewed for Arctic expeditions and those kind of things. And this year we 're doing uh the rise and fall of english porter seventeen fifty to nineteen sixty and uh so you know you will have probably nine porters uh on tap and as ron's talking about how World War I decimated English ale, you can sit there with a pre World War one and a post World War one porter in your hand and uh you know just it's it's such a great way of of learning history through you know while drinking. You know, and, and Porter is is the most interesting because you know it starts off with 100% diastatic brown malt, and then they uh, you know they, they invent the hydrometer, and then they, you know brown malt's disappearing, and they're trying to get the color up, and then they invent black malt, mm-hmm. and then uh, brown malt almost disappears except in London, and and then they you know they legalize sugar, and then all of a sudden you get the number three invert in there, and and, and every little invention. Uh, Or or war or tax thing changes porter so dramatically that it goes from you know in in the uh, mid 1800s 80 percent of all beer brewed was porter. Mm -hmm. There was whole breweries all they made was porter. If you ordered a a beer at a bar, you would have got a porter. To you know 100 years later in 1960, it wasn't brewed at all in England. Mm -hmm. Porter had completely disappeared, only to be brewed again by Anchor Brewing in San Francisco. Uh, and then they started rebrewing it again in England. And, you know, people are like, oh, what about Sam Smith or whatever? It's all post-1970 mm-hmm. uh, beers.
1: And Anchor definitely plays a, an important role. And by the way, we, should for, we shouldn't we should forget to mention uh, Ron Pattinson runs a blog called uh, Shut Up About Barkley Perkins. Mm-hmm. Uh, you can find that online. And he has been doing. Um, Beard lover and historian lovers work by going and digging into the archives and actually pulling out you know real facts as opposed to the stories that we tell
2: oh yeah if if you still believe the b j c p uh descriptions of Scottish ale you need to uh, read one of uh, ron's books on scotland it'll
1: uh, it'll clear up a few things yeah, yeah it, it, he's he's forced a lot of people to be more honest, including myself yeah. so um and to me, what I was just thinking about was. With the quad and with the porter and everything else, we always talk, and you know, Anthony Bourdain always talked about this. The best way to know a people is to eat the things they eat, to drink the things they eat, right? That's a, that is one of the most effective ways to immerse yourself into a culture. So, in a way, with like the porter series that you're going to do, or the other, uh, vintage beers that you do, or, even this uh, Appalachian Quad, you know, they're, they're a little bit of that infusion of here's how you know a culture, right? You can tell, like, you can tell, like, drinking that that uh, 1910 mile that, that we started the program with. I mean, that's a beer born of a time of deprivation, effectively. Oh gosh, austerity. Yeah, and so, you know, put yourself into that mindset. You can easily get there with this, you know, and to know that that was still a treat during that time.
2: Yeah, every time Ron comes, we uh, we try to do him a solid and turn this place into a London pub, circa 1910. So we do a complete tap takeover of all beer from that era. So you walk in and you can have a Burton ale, a mild, a bitter, an IPA, all from these uh, from the actual brewers' records. And I don't know, just. uh, Sometimes I feel like taking it a little further, like when we're talking about these, you know, beers that were brewed during World War One or World War Two, you know, to maybe have like just – you have, you come in and there's no electricity. It's just candles and you hear like recordings of bombs going off and there's just this smell of gunpowder in the air <coughs> and all the beer is like 1% to 3% and, you know, they're out of half of them. <laughs> just a full immersion like we're talking about in what it would have been like to be – trying to drink beer in 1917 you know or in you know 1948 or 49 this is the, those years after world war ii were, were really mm-hmm. brutal for for uh, beer drinkers in england
1: oh yeah absolutely so before we wrap things up, i did want to ask you one thing because we've talked about a lot of a lot of successes has, has there been a beer that you've ever done that that you thought you had a really good plan on and it didn't turn out the way that you wanted it to no, I,
2: well, like for example, the Arctic Ale that we were talking mm-hmm. about—it's a monster, uh, 1.130 original gravity beer—and um, I, I, you know, I wanted to be traditional, so I, I went to a local brewery and got a six-gallon carboy full of 002 slurry, pitched it in, went nuts for a couple weeks, and completely stopped. It's like, oh, let me take a final gravity reading, 10.80.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: and uh I, I tried everything to get it started again, and it would not uh it would not restart, so I filled up a barrel that had some Britannomyces in it and dumped the rest and uh about a year and a half ago, I filled the barrel so i i recently I tasted it, and it had dropped to about ten thirty seven but it was just it it wasn't something I was proud of, so I dumped that as well but uh that was the only one that didn't pan out there's beers that i've made that didn't sell well.
1: Oh, that's always the case.
2: You know, a uh, uh, word of advice to people out there, don't brew smoked beers. Nobody likes smoked beers. Um we made a Grodzitsky, of a hard, you know, if you want a, a really hard beer to sell, it's a 3% uh, smoked, smoked beer. Weed. So that 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 didn't sell well. I loved it. And you know, every beer has its its people are like, "Dude, i can't believe people don't love this beer." But you know it is a business and um, you know even a seven barrel batch of beer is a thousand seven fifty mil bottles it's a lot of beer to be moving mm-hmm. especially if we don't distribute outside of North Carolina so I'm just you know well, learning that uh, you know you just either make smaller batches of the weird stuff or um, you know just something you just can't sell like this one percent Mild people are like, whoa, do you think you can make a big batch? I'm like, oh, No, no, no way. <laughs> this is just a goof, you know. Just, uh, I'm doing this to be me, yeah. It's fun, it's a historical beer that no other person in the entire world would ever make, and um, I think it's worth trying it's just for myself. I mean, I think I'll make this beer again just for, for my own uh personal enjoyment to have on tap at my house. For in the middle of summer when I'm working on in the yard, I can drink eight pints, you know, and uh, I can totally drive. We'll I have to pull over to pee every five
1: minutes, but uh, – Well, yeah, that's like I have a, a, a toffle beer recipe that I really love, but that's like 2%, so that's ugh, even bigger. Imperial. I know, right? <laughs> and I know you have taps here, but, uh, I mean, is your beer on draft anywhere else in the area or is it just – No, we'll pull a couple of kegs. Either
2: four or five kegs from every batch we do and those will go out to select bottle shops or special events. Mm-hmm. Um, but we don't really do draft beer. Everything is in those disposable plastic kegs. Mm-hmm. Um, so there's a handful of places around town that, that uh, will take a keg of anything we make. But uh, you know the brewers out there know there's not that much money in draft beer, especially with a little you know somebody doing four or five barrels at a time selling that as draft is just you know it's ridiculous you're never going to make any money so you got to either sell it you know make your money selling it over the over the bar out you know by the ounce or you you know bottle it up and sell it that's the only way to make a small brewery like this financially
1: feasible well uh, i was gonna say you have sort of unusual hours and an unusual location but uh i you know i could see if i was in your area i would uh I would always want to make sure I come in here. And beforehand, I was telling you a story about a friend of mine who was going to go tour Asheville and then take a right turn and come all the way to L.A. And he never made it to Asheville because he just stayed here and enjoyed himself too much. Good, I'm glad to hear that. Yeah. So, any any last words of wisdom before we uh, before we leave the fine folks?
2: When you're getting ready to go to bed at night and you think you don't have to pee, go ahead and try to pee anyways. You'll be amazed sometimes.
1: <laughs> All right, and with that, <laughs> it's time to close up here at Zebulon. I hope you guys have a good time. And, and yeah, if you're here in Weaverville, North Carolina, a.k.a. just north of Asheville, uh, make sure you uh, make your way up here. I think you'll be pleasantly surprised. Fridays and Saturdays only, 1 to 6. uh uh-uh. Hey, Fridays, Fridays and Saturdays, <laughs> perfectly all right for drinking beer. <laughs> Cheers, everybody.
0: Nobody could ever accuse Mike of making boring beer, huh?
1: And nobody, I think, could ever accuse him of being interested in making lots of money.
0: <laughs> yeah, I guess that too.
1: <laughs> no, but I mean, look, that 1% uh mild that he served me, that was fantastic. I mean, that was just like a, having a glass of iced tea in a way, but just beery flavored iced tea.
0: Yeah, you know, some of the, some of the beers he gave you to bring back for us to taste uh, during our uh, our talk at boot camp were just amazing. Like there was like an IPA with Brett or something, as I recall.
1: Yeah, there was an IPA with Brett. There was a Belgian dark that had all sorts of interesting ingredients in it. Yeah, I mean, he's just got a very traditionally experimental point of view.
0: Yeah, he he does. And but experimental in what I would consider the best way, you know. Mm-hmm.
1: Oh yeah, but again, I mean that's the traditional experimental thing. So I I cannot stress it enough to y'all. If you're anywhere near Weaverville, if you're in Asheville and you're doing, like, the whole, you know, pub crawl, brewery crawl thing, carve out some time. Go to Zebulon. I think you'll be really pleased. I had a friend of mine who was driving down to come to California from Pennsylvania and drove down through Asheville because he likes 90-degree turns. Um, <laughs> And he was going to go into Asheville and, and do all this stuff. He stopped at Zebulon, and he never never left Zebulon to go into Asheville proper.
0: that's great so should you happen to be there on one of the what two days a week that he's open exactly definitely definitely check him out say hi to mike for us yeah so there you go it's a good one enjoy it please do and now
1: it's time for something else
0: it is it's time for something else being we're going to take a quick break here and when we come back we're going to wrap up the show so stick around we'll be right back Getting accurate measurements of your beer is one of the keys to improving your brewing. Thanks for joining us. We are ready to wrap up the show and get out of here. This is where we would normally do some Q&A, but we have an all Q&A show coming up, episode 97, the one after homebrew con. So we're going to skip Q&A today. We're going to save those questions and the answers, we hope, and uh, give you guys a couple more weeks to get questions into us. So uh, if you have a question, write in to questions at experimentalbrew.com or come by and see us at HumberCon and bring us your question there. That works, too.
1: Or leave us a voicemail or text message at 626 765 And don't forget to leave your name.
0: Yeah, please do. Uh, we want to give you credit or blame, as the case may be. Uh, and while we may not be doing Q&A, it is time
1: for us to do quick tips and something other, because why not? And our quick tip for this week is, well, over the weekend, I went and I did my, my semi-annual starter run. That's right. That's when I go and I make pressure can starters. And for whatever reason, I decided I was going to take some pictures of it and post pictures and little videos of it to both our Facebook page and our Instagram page. And people really responded to it. You know, I have a recipe that I wrote up um, over a decade ago now about how I do pressure can starter warts. And we've talked about them here on the on the show before. But, you know, it was just kind of nice to revisit the technique and to get a bunch of sterile wart that was ready for me to go whenever I need to make a yeast e-starter. Now, one thing I did see, which is the reason why I'm bringing it up here, was a lot of people responding back saying, hey, you know, by the way, I've adapted your, your process. and, and it, But instead of doing the starter wort at, you know, that 10-35, 10-40 range, which is what I normally do, they're doing theirs as concentrated wort. So they're doing their wort in the jar at, like, say, 1070-1075 10 10-75-ish, you know, in that area. And then, like, oh, and then when it's time for me to make a starter... I dilute it down, and that way I get twice the volume. And that's interesting to me to see people do it. It's kind of building up on that same sort of process like the proper starter does from Omega. And it just it's a little different than what I do because I really like the convenience of being able to go out and grab a jar, sanitize it, pop the lid, and pour it into a jug and go. Uh, And I really don't like messing around with having either sanitized or sterile water that I'm going to add and dilute things down because I'm paranoid. And so for me, that process doesn't quite uh, jibe with how I feel comfortable with. But if it makes you feel comfortable, it's a perfectly fine adaptation of my same process.
0: Well, and you know what, man? You get you get twice the amount of starter for the same amount of pressure canning. So uh, if you don't want to spend time pressure canning twice as much or you don't have a bigger pressure canner, it, it seems like a pretty valid technique.
1: Yeah, no, it is. I, I don't see any problems with it. It's just it's not my technique.
0: <laughs> yeah, exactly. Well, geez, <laughs> big surprise. Yeah. All right,
1: and then of course we have to leave you with something other than beer because into all beery lives something non-beery must fall, and I'm bringing you another one, which is a a book that I discovered over the past week, and I pretty much read it in like no time, and that's called Minimum Wage Magic by an author named Rachel Aaron. She also writes science fiction under the name of Rachel Bach. And she's kind of an indie author, uh, you know, doing a lot of her stuff. She has a whole urban fantasy series about dragons called the Heartstriker Clan series. And this is set in the same world as Heartstrikers, but instead it follows other characters. And the whole idea is it's a world in the future where magic has come back and dragons are back and other magical creatures are there. And there are mages and and living gods who, you know, walk the earth. And the city of Detroit has been... Destroyed and rebuilt and destroyed again in this battle of a couple of gods, claimed by some dragons. And it's now a city of a living god where free commerce is the rule and there are really no other rules. And it's just kind of, well, fun. And just like the Ginger Sazana I had earlier in this episode, it's fun, it's light, it's zippy, it's a little bit of brain candy. And it was just a really enjoyable read. And I'm actually going to check out that book two just came out. She apparently writes it at a blistering pace of like 10,000 words per day. Uh, So always paying out books. So it'll be interesting to see if I enjoyed the second book in the series as much. So again, that was Minimum Wage Magic by Rachel Aaron.
0: Cool, man. Sounds very interesting. Yeah, not too bad. When when I uh, learn how to read, maybe I'll give it a look.
1: I have faith. (laughs) Yeah, right.
0: But in the meantime... Thank you all for listening to Experimental Brewing. You can catch all of our latest adventures and writings by going to our website, which is experimentalbrew.com. Don't forget that you can follow us on Twitter, where we're at expbrewing. We're on Facebook. We're on Instagram. Drew hangs out on the homebrewing subreddit and spends a lot of time also on the Slack homebrew channel. You can usually find me hanging around the AHA forum or a bunch of other beer discussion forums. If you want to ask us a question or suggest topics or recipes or experiments or even just rant and rave, you can email us at podcast at experimentalbrew.com. Or if you want to get a hold of each one of us individually, I'm Denny at experimentalbrew.com and he's Drew at experimentalbrew.com. And don't forget, like Drew said earlier, you can always leave us a voicemail or text at 626-765-1AL. Be sure to tell us who you are. So until next time, remember to always brew experimentally. Or brew wacky. And we'll see you on the next episode of Experimental Brewing.